1: Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word in Orlando. Uh, Once again, Alan Dempsey, he does our engineering, and uh, Andrew Hrdliska produces the show for us. John Simmons is with us from St. Louis, president of Testimony House Ministries, the author of a book, God Has a Sentence for Your Life. John, wonderful to catch up with you. Thanks for joining me.
0: Thanks for having me on the show. Very excited to talk with you about this, what I think is a great message for people to hear right now.
1: Good, John, good. Well, your audience is the I-4 corridor right across central Florida, and I know they'll uh, benefit from hearing from you. Well, anyway, your book uh, breaks down into five sections. The first section is called Finding My Sentence. Uh, Tell us about how you opened the book. What's going on here?
0: So a backstory on me, and I opened the book this way by sort of giving a recollection of what's happened to me over the last six years and the time since I found Christ. I was a former problem gambler Mm. who started gambling at the height of the World Series of Poker Boom in 2002 when Chris... Moneymaker won $2 million on ESPN off a $40 entry. And I was really excited to try and do that with my own life. And so I was t- 21 at the time, and I fell into this concept of trying to live and purpose my future to be a professional poker player. Mm. And it didn't take long for that behavior to spiral out of control. In the moment, I did not have God in my life, and nor did I believe that Jesus was my Lord or Savior. And so, these behaviors that I was participating in, which included going to the casino all the time, anytime it was open, because it wasn't open 24 hours in St. Louis at the time, and pouring all of the money that I had earned over my life at that point into these poker games. And eventually, the money ran out. I turned to credit cards. I turned to payday loans to fund my habit, and by the time I was 23, I had to file bankruptcy. I had lost equivalent, basically, a couple hundred thousand dollars, uh, just a couple years span, and the problem was not that I was this terrible gambler, it's that I had no off switch, and that whether I won or lost, the behavior fueled everything that I did. So, Mm
2: -hmm. after
0: I filed bankruptcy, and I was desiring to sort of change my life around, because everyone in my life was, telling me to be different and be better and to not live this way anymore. Problem was, my heart wasn't telling me that. So the next eight years, basically, I did a pattern of rinse and repeat, where I would gain some money, gamble it away in some fashion. I got heavy into sports betting and the bookies who would give you unlimited credit, and you didn't need a credit card offer in the mail to get that kind of credit. And so over eight years, it was just lose your money, pay Rob Peter to pay Paul, And I got a job inside the casino itself trying to uh, fund my habit and be near my addiction. So at the end of this depression that it caused my life, I decided to enter into rehab for the first time on my own ability at 29. And after 90 days clean, my first 90 days clean as an adult, the desire to gamble never left me. Mm. I was very unsure why this was happening because I always thought you go to rehab to get fixed. That's what happens. You go to rehab, you come out clean. You don't want to do the thing that you did when you went in. And my counselors at the time told me that you have to live this way every day for the rest of your life and that it's about living in the moment and saying no for the next 15 minutes. To me, that was the most depressing idea I'd ever heard. It took every ounce of willpower in my body to not gamble for those 90 days and not try to. And it's all I thought about. It consumed me. I I, overate. I slept as much as I could. I watched as much TV as I could to sort of run from that desire. Well, the desire didn't work out for me. And at the end of that conversation with that counselor, I left the facility and went on a bender. And when the bender was over, Pat, after about eight days, I was just finally at the end of my rope. And (laughs) you know, I just I had been to every single bottom you can hit. I had broken relationships. I had friendships that had been destroyed my family many of them either hated me or weren't talking to me because of my behavior and the things that I'd done over the last decade and I was sort of ready to end my life I didn't see really a hope in a future for my life anymore Pat so sort of desperate without God in my life and not even thinking that he was the answer to anything I sat on my bed in my apartment where I was living at the time and I thought well before I kill myself maybe I'll make this one last last ditch effort and so I cried out to God in a prayer. I said, God, if you're real, I need you to show me a future and a hope for my life, because I just don't see one anymore. Mm. And in, in that moment, I felt peace, and I heard the words, the kingdom of heaven is upon you in my mind. And I thought that I had finally gone crazy, Pat. I thought I was maybe hearing voices. I ran into my living room. I opened up a Bible that belonged to my father. had been given to me. He passed away when I was 12 years old. I would never opened it. I opened the Bible to the first page of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, and I read down a few lines, and it says in Matthew 3 and 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. It was the same thoughts that I had just moments earlier. had no idea what they meant until I saw them on the paper, and I knew that God was real. He was talking to me, and I needed to start saying, I'm sorry for the things that I had done, and start seeking out His sentence, His plan for my life. Although I wouldn't have called it that at the time, I would have just said, God, help me. That's basically what I was crying out for. and so. The first time I went to church, after I got born again, the pastor said, if you're a Christian, God's got a plan for your life. And this was revelation knowledge to me. I had lived my whole life sort of aimlessly, even though I was trying to be a professional gambler. I had had no purpose other than that. I didn't think that God created me special. I didn't know that. That was news to me as well. I didn't know that he had put gifts and talents in my DNA in order to, you know, help me serve others in, in the future with my life. And so I, as soon as I heard this message that God has a plan and a vision for your life, I was hungry to find it. And so I started praying every day, God, what do you want me to do? What's your vision for my life? How can I serve other people? Show me how to do these things. What is this? You know, I, all any prayer that I could send up, I sent up in regards to this request. And about six months later, I got a vision from God that, to start a ministry called Testimony House, and it was going to be a, a Christian learning center that helps disciple other people and shares the stories of believers in order to uh, spur the loss to find Christ for themselves. And I've been sharing my testimony ever since. We've created an online learning center to help people find John- what they need from Christ, and now here we are trying to walk out this plan for my life.
1: <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me, John. <clears throat> um, how big a problem around our country is compulsive gambling?
0: It's a huge issue, Pat, and this is one of my passion projects that I haven't gotten a lot to write about yet, but it's coming. The idea that problem gambling is growing, especially in America, is going to increase dramatically. In fact, uh, they say, statistics say, that uh, nearly 10% of adult males in America have some sort of gambling, either addiction or uh Uh, some sort of compulsion to do it, and not necessarily. And, And of those percentages, they're going to be able to do it effectively now that the legislature has achieved the ability to make sports betting legalized throughout the country. And the NHL and the NBA and Major League Baseball, and you're in this world, Pat, and I don't know if you've seen much of it yourself, they're going to be clinging on to these efforts to sort of allow gambling be part of the entertainment process, that's what they'll call it, But really, it'll be opportunities to speak to that man or that family or that guy who's like I was, who just is looking for something to do in their life and some sort of purpose. And they're going to have opportunities via through apps, via through, uh, you know, uh, just live at the game. Maybe you'll be able to buy a ticket and bet on it at the same time at at some point in the future. This is going to be a heavy problem for families facing, you know, uh, entertainment problems, they'll call it. I've been to Disneyland. I've never been and seen a billboard on the way in saying, if you ride this roller coaster too much, you'll ruin your family. But I have driven by casinos where they have billboards up that say, you know, call this number if you have a compulsive problem. And I hope we don't start seeing that on the way to the Cardinals games here in St. Louis, too.
1: My guest is John Simmons, president of Testimony House Ministries. His book is called God Has a Sentence for Your Life. We've got another segment with John, right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. And remember, faith comes by hearing. John Simmons is in St. Louis. He's with us. His book is out. God has a sentence for your life. John, tell us uh, about your growth as a Christian over these years.
0: Yeah, the last six years have been a tremendous time for me uh, getting to know the Lord and learning uh, more about who He was and how I should follow His examples. I was a problem gambler, depressed, frustrated. I had this empty thinking feeling that there was always something more for my life, but I could never find it. And in the six years since, my life has done a complete 180 turnaround. Peace, joy, hope. They all exist in my life when they didn't before Christ. I have the opportunity to speak with Him every day, to read His Word, and I have the opportunity to love Him and love others every day. Those are things that I wasn't doing prior to Christ. I had no desire to live a life that helped other people. I was completely selfish in all of my actions. I didn't want to have children. I didn't want to burden myself with the responsibility of taking care of anyone. Yet Christ came into my heart, gave me a desire to love others, He brought me a beautiful wife, and we've had two children since, and I love the opportunity to care for them, to teach them, to serve them in any way that I can. I mean, they started calling me the new John Simmons. It was the name of my radio show for a while, Pat, because the people who knew me before Christ, I started to change so much that they didn't recognize all the smiles and the joy that I was carrying with me. They were like, you're a new John Simmons. It's been tremendous.
1: Where did your wife come into the picture?
0: Soon after I got born again, about six months, my wife, I met her through a a Bible study and she sat right next to me and we've been sitting next to each other ever since when I shared with her the vision for what I was trying to accomplish through Christ and being able to share my testimony with others and help lead other people to the Lord. She had said that she had been praying for a long time for God to bring a man into her life that was leading a ministry and that had a, a caring heart for others had she met me just a year prior to that, she would have met a completely different man. Not the man that was, hopefully, an answer to her prayers, but a selfish, uh, prideful man who had no desire to do any of the things that she was asking God to bring into her life.
1: You do a chapter in your book about the four strong emotions, John. Joy, anger, hate, love. Uh, Can you tell us more about that?
0: Yeah, so as I was going through the Bible for the first time, and I was trying to reconcile something someone had once told me about the emotions, and you're not supposed to live by emotions, but I was seeing all of these emotions in all these chapters of the Bible, and, and I was trying to understand where God wants us to be on these, and so some revelation that I think I found, and I want to share with others, is this idea that strong emotions are different than Regular emotions and strong emotions, by definition, are love, anger, hate, and joy. These are, by definition, the strong ones. A weak emotion, if you want to call it that, or just a regular emotion, would be something like sadness or uh, happiness. And the differences that I try to highlight in the book is that a strong emotion can cause you to make a life changing choice. And this is what I think God wants us to notice about emotion in regards to his plan for our life or our results when we're making decisions. If a friend of mine, for instance, wants to go to a movie with me, and we set plans to go on Friday night, but he cancels on me, those, I might begin to be sad by that, but in no way am I going to tell that friend, we're not friends anymore, I can't talk to you anymore. Meanwhile, if I my, that same friend called me names somewhere in public, Or, you know, offended my wife, and I got angry about that. Those emotions could cause me to say, you know what? I'm not going to talk to this person anymore. I'm not going to let them be part of my life anymore. And that's a life changing choice. And we see this all the time, whether it's a war that's been started because of hatred, or, you know, you can maybe punch somebody and go to jail for it. That's a life changing choice because of that anger, or the joy or the love that's in your heart where you say, I love God so much that I'm willing to lay down my life and pick up the life that He has for me. I'm willing to serve other people more than I'm willing to serve myself. These are life-changing choices that are, uh, that are affected because God's put emotion inside of us.
1: John, you do a chapter, it's actually section three, <clears throat> all about the word passion. Yeah. Finding passion, passion after Jesus, value of passion. Hebrews 11, passion types of passion, passion fruit, the pinnacle of passion, mm-hmm. steps to finding passion. Uh, you've got to explain all that to us. Sure.
0: Well, passion sort of one of these hot words right now, Pat, where people are throwing that around, and identity, and entrepreneurship. There's lots of these new words that people have clung to to sort of describe what they are excited about doing in life, and passion as defined by the Bible, is two things. And one is it's to be led by your strong emotions, which leads to the section we just talked about. The other is the sufferings of Christ on the cross. The word passion is literally defined after the name of Jesus. And I don't know about you, when I look through a dictionary, I don't often see a name attributed to a definition. I think this is because God has pointed out this word as a, really look at this. The importance of passion is important, and so much so that the story of Jesus and the movies that have been created about it are called the passion of the Christ. Mm -hmm. Well, what is that passion? What is that passion all about? I highlight in the book my belief here is that when he's about to give his life on the cross, he goes to the garden to pray, and he says, God, let your will be done, but not mine, you know, but can this cup of suffering be brought over by me. And it says this three times in this section of Scripture, where he's sort of saying, is this, is there any other way, you know, that's hard to sort of figure out exactly what's going on there, but there's obviously some sort of, he's having a moment with God, a real authentic prayer, but he's, at the end of it, he's saying, you know what, God, it doesn't matter what I want, it doesn't matter what you want me to do, I'm going to do it, because I love you so much. And this idea that passion is living by a strong emotion, and love is the greatest of the strong emotions, and that Jesus showed us the greatest example of how to walk God's sentence with our life when He said, God, I will do whatever you want me to do, even up to death, even in anguish, it says that Jesus was in before He went to the cross. And so sometimes for us, when we're walking in passion, we think it's going to be this really exciting thing and we're just going to do what God says for us. It's going to make us full of so much joy. But sometimes there will be moments, we see it in the life of Christ many times, where it's not easy to follow and go where God wants you to go. But God's plan for our life is greater than our own, and it helps and serves more people than we can do on our own. It's just the idea of passion is the idea of saying, I love God so much that I'm willing to do whatever he asks of me.
1: Now I want you to get in to another word that is frequently used in section four, and that's the word vision. Everyone has had a vision. Where vision comes from, the importance of vision. Hebrews 11 vision, five ways God reveals a vision, steps to finding vision. Oh, boy, John, you got to tell us all about that.
0: Oh, please. I came across in this book, the idea of this book, God has a sentence for your life, came out of Hebrews 11, which you just mentioned, which is this chapter of faith, they call it, where Noah built a boat, and Abraham led his family, and Sarah had a child, and it's just a collection of short or one-sentence stories. Mm -hmm. of of men and women, regular men and women, who do extraordinary things because of their faith in God. And at first I thought it was just about faith. I thought, all you need is faith to do what God wants you to do. But as I was writing and putting this together, I realized these people all had a vision from God as well. And so if we're going to find God's sentence for our life, because I believe, just like in Hebrews 11, where Abraham and Noah and David and Samson, they all have a sentence, so do we and there are books in heaven being recorded uh, with our every thought, and he counts the stars. He says these books will be opened, every word will be brought up, so we know that there's a record of what's going on in our life. I believe it's just like Hebrews 11 for us, in the fact that we can live a life by faith. But first, we need to have vision. And Noah didn't wake up one morning and go, you know what, I think I'm going to build a boat. No, he had a vision from God to go and build that boat. And for people today, I really believe this, that if you don't have somewhere to walk towards, you're always going to fall back into your path. And that path could be some sort of sin issue in your life, some sort of bad relationship, some sort of life without Christ. When Christ shows up in your life, it's time to capture the salvation that you received by pre-gift, and then you're going to say, Lord, I want to follow you. Where do I go, though? I had no idea where to go once I got born again. I didn't even know that there was somewhere to go. So I know the importance of having a vision that's helped me break free of the addiction that I carried for so long, that desire to gamble that was such a big deal for me back in my early life has now completely been destroyed. I have no desire to gamble. I quit smoking. I quit drinking. I quit cursing. I did all these things after Christ because I was following the vision he had placed in front of me to run this ministry and to chase after serving other people. And that allowed me to really let go of some of the big sin issues in my life. Vision is important. We get vision from God in the same way that we get passion.
1: What's the difference between a vision and a dream, uh, John? What do you think?
0: So in my mind, a vision is not necessarily something that is given to you in a burning bush. You know, I can write down a vision for my life. I can write down plans. And the Bible says God can guide our steps and direct our path. So not every vision that we have in life is necessarily going to be some heavenly revelation. However, I think that dreams are given to us by God. We see this throughout the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not every dream is from God. Please hear me through this, that God has given dreams to people, and He gives us ideas for maybe future events. He gives us ideas for what we uh, are going through in our life. There's different types of dreams, and I highlight uh, not the dream aspect so much in the book, but really the difference between them. And I want people to know that God can speak to us in a number of different ways, and if we're going to walk through and find God's sentence for our life, it's just about being available and recognizing any way God wants to talk to you, whether it's through His Word, whether someone, you know, your pastor sows uh, a word into your heart, whatever it is for you, you know, a family plan that you and your, your wife have, be listening in your prayer time to what God has for you to do.
1: And then, John Simmons, in Section 5, Finding Faith. Faith looks forward. Value of faith. Growing in faith. When faith doesn't work. Stories of faith. Steps to finding faith. What's the story here with faith?
0: Faith is my favorite subject, Pat. I wrote my first book. This is sort of a condensed version of Finding Faith. my first book. God gave me an understanding of faith early on in my walk, which has allowed me to do big things in my life in regards to quitting an old job that made a lot of money, to go into a new path that wasn't very profitable, but yet God has blessed me in that road. Being able to find and marry my wife when I wasn't looking for, you know, moving to a part in my city that I didn't think I'd ever go back to, and to the natural eye, which is right by where Ferguson happened. You would think, well, maybe you shouldn't be there, but God placed me in a house right by Ferguson, Missouri, the same week that Michael Brown got shot, and I was able to minister to people in that area in that season. I know that there are opportunities of faith out there for all of us, and one of the things that I share most frequently about faith, I'll share here, too, is this idea of vacation faith. When we go on vacation, we plan it out in advance. We figure out where we're going to go. We look for fun opportunities and events to do while we're on vacation. We buy our hotel room or our flight tickets, or we rent the car, and we're all excited about it. We'll get on social media, and we'll tell all our friends, I'm going on vacation in six months. I can't wait to go. I'm looking forward to this. I am so excited about this. This is what faith looks like. But in our own lives, we don't know how to exercise that same level of faith in our everyday activities, our everyday lives. We don't look at a pile of bills on the counter and say, I can't wait to pay those off. We say, we'll never pay them off. We can't say, I'm never going to have a... We say, I'm never going to get a wife, instead of saying, I can't wait till she shows up. I can't wait for that moment. When it comes to faith, the idea is that we have to look forward. Hebrews talks about keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. When Peter gets on the water, he looks up at Jesus. It's not until he starts looking down that he begins to sink. Looking forward, and we say this all the time: "I'm looking forward to that game. I'm looking forward to that movie. I'm looking forward to seeing you on the weekend." We use this term all the time with things we're excited about. But when we start using that term in regards to what God has for us, I'm looking forward to running this ministry. I'm looking forward to serving this person. I'm looking forward to praying for you. Then our sort of our heart begins to shift. It becomes to come more excited to be what God wants us to be and to be able to be effective in finding and walking out the vision he asked for us. You get a passion for God, you get a vision from God, and then you find the faith to walk it out.
1: John Simmons has been our guest. A good one, too, I'll tell you, and his book, God Has a Sentence for Your Life. We have more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM. And AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Mary T. Lederleitner, our guest in that first segment, talking about her book, Women in God's Mission. Uh, Matthew Barrett is in Kansas City. Uh, He is a professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. His book is out. It's called None Greater. Baker Books put it out, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. Matthew, welcome. How are you? Doing
2: great. Thank you for having me on.
1: Uh, The Undomesticated Attributes of God, what does that mean?
2: Well, that subtitle is central to the argument that I make, which is, as Christians and in our Christian circles, oftentimes we talk about God in a way that tends to domesticate him. Uh, We tend to view God as merely a, a bigger, better version of ourselves, and when we do that, Uh, God merely becomes just uh, the same type of being that we are, but just a a greater in size. What I argue is that actually God can't be domesticated like that. He's not just merely a bigger, better version of ourselves. Uh, The Bible calls that idolatry. Rather, uh, he's a different type of being altogether. He's the creator; we're the creature. He's infinite, and we are finite. He's incomprehensible and. And from there stem a whole range of divine attributes.
1: Matthew, your uh, book, your chapter titles all end with a question mark. So let's get started. Can we know the essence of God?
2: Yes, well, this gets at the incomprehensibility of God. If he's the creator who is infinite and we are the creature who is finite— Uh, then we can never uh, exhaust God. We can never uh, get to a point where we've mastered God in some way. Uh, He is incomprehensible in that sense. Now, while we can never um, know God exhaustively, we can, however, know him truly as he has made himself known to us through his works and, most importantly, through his Son, Jesus
1: Christ. Next question. Can we think God's thoughts after Him?
2: Well, this is a question that uh, deserves a lot of care and precision. Whenever we talk about God, we have to remember that this is the infinite God we are speaking of, and so our language, uh, naturally, is those who are made in in His image, uh, we're, we're not we're not God ourselves; we're we image God instead. Uh, well, if that's the case, then our language about God, our, our God talk, as I like to say, it's always uh, analogical in nature. In, in other words, it doesn't it doesn't pretend to capture God in all His glory and and uh, magnificence. Nor does it pretend that uh, well we can't know anything about God. Rather, there is both similarity and dissimilarity. So we can know God, but we always have to remember whenever we're talking about God, we're talking about Him. Um, in a way that's uh, by analogy.
1: Now, we move to another question. Is God the perfect being?
2: Well, the short answer is yes, and absolutely yes. Uh, of course, every Christian affirms God's the perfect being, but what I mean by that is something a little bit more in-depth. Uh, I, I, when I say God's the perfect being, I mean he's someone than whom none greater can be conceived, and if that's the case well he's he must be infinite uh the the infinite God what does that mean exactly? well, it means that any type of limitation must be precluded from the start uh and from there come all the rest of the attributes any any limitation uh, that would somehow cripple God uh like change or uh, being made up of parts or being uh, a God who's dependent on uh, a needy God or a God who who's vulnerable to mood swings or bound by time and space and so on. All these types of limitations are precluded of God, which means that uh, whenever we talk about the attributes of God, we have to then define him as the one who is perfect, infinite, without these creaturely limitations.
1: Now, Matthew, tell us about... Does God depend on you?
2: You know, so often as Christians, I sometimes hear Christians talk this way, um, well-intentioned perhaps, but uh, they'll say, well, what was God doing before he created the world? And they'll say, well, he, he was he was lonely. Uh, he was, you know, twiddling his thumbs, and thank goodness he created us. Uh, we, we somehow brought him fulfillment. Well, that may sound like that makes us important, but actually that's a God that uh, we start to feel sorry for, a God who's who's a needy God and, and desperate almost. Uh, when when we go to Scripture, what we see is, well, if God is infinite and the perfect being, he's not uh, dependent on the creature as if he's a, a needy God. Rather, he is independent, self-existent, self-sufficient, a God of asciety— and it's only because he is uh, a god of aseity that he he then can help us, very needy, dependent creatures who in- entirely depend on him.
1: What does the word aseity mean?
2: When we use the word aseity, or in, it comes from the Latin osse I mean, it refers to the fact that God is life in and of Himself, mm-hmm. um, and so He doesn't look to someone else to uh, give Him. Uh, to, to, to for his own existence, or to somehow, uh, you know, fill a hole that's lacking in him. He is ause. It means he is um, life in himself, independent, self-existent, self-sufficient. Uh,
1: Matthew, the next question is, is God made up of parts?
2: You know, sometimes when we talk about the attributes of God, naturally, because we're finite creatures— we have to focus on one attribute at a time, and that's fine. But we always need to remember that uh, even though we're talking about one attribute at a time, these are not parts in God. It's not as if God's, you know, 30% love and 40% holiness, that sort of thing. Uh, if if this were the case, uh, well, we, we would have a problem. It would mean that God is, uh, like us, you know, uh, a being who's composed— of different things, and then there's the potential that he could be divided by these parts, or even these parts could fall apart on us. Uh, rather, God is simple. Uh, he's a God uh, who's one. Uh, this is a, something that's said throughout the Scriptures. Uh, to put this plainly, uh, we see this in Scripture whenever it says God. That God doesn't merely possess love; he is love. He, he, he doesn't just act in a righteous way; he is holy.
1: Does God change? That's immutability, right?
2: Yes, immutability. This may be one of the most important attributes and important chapters in the book, uh, because when we, a minute ago, we talked about God being the perfect being, and and therefore any type of limitation has to be uh, precluded. Well, uh, maybe first on the list, the the limitation that that would just spell disaster for God would be any type of change in God. is. That would raise the question, is he changing for the better? Is he changing for the worse? Can we can we rely on him? Can we trust in him? Well, Scripture uh, again and again tells us, no, God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It says he's everlasting. He is always eternally the same. And for that reason, we can depend on him and trust in his promises
1: does God have emotions
2: you know in the 21st century we use uh, very emotional language uh, especially when we're talking about one another um, and uh, we have to be careful here because if we simply apply that to God well he can start to look a lot like the the pagan deities that surrounded Israel these were uh, or, or even some of the the Greek and Roman uh, pagan deities uh, these were gods who were Bigger and better than mankind, but just as much, uh, they, they looked a lot like man, uh, ve- very much uh, emotional and and uh, subject to mood swings. You know, one minute uh, they love you, the next minute uh, you can't trust them because they turn against you, and uh, very very unpredictable. Well, when we come to scripture, we see that well, God is a God who does not change; He's immutable. And what one aspect of that is, uh, this is a God. Uh, who's not uh, vulnerable to to these types of mood swings. He's not subject to emotional change. Uh, Rather, he's a God who who is who he is eternally.
1: Is that what the word impassibility means?
2: It is. Uh, It's an old word. We we don't use it much today. But uh, if we look at, say, the old confessions of the Church, they would say things like, God is impassable or he is without passions and what what they mean by that is is not that God is you know indifferent and stoic and cold no that's not what they mean rather what they're trying to avoid is what we just described that that this this God is is someone who is uh, like those those pagan deities someone who is just controlled by his emotions
1: Uh, The book is called None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. Matthew Barrett, the author, is our guest. Matthew, we've arrived at this topic. Is God in time, timeless eternity?
2: Yes, well, this is uh, one of the most important questions to ask. It, It may seem to Christians like, well, this is somewhat abstract and, And that sort of thing actually is very relevant to to the Christian life. Uh, I argue that uh, Scripture describes God as the eternal God, the one who is timelessly eternal. You and I, we have certain limitations. We experience one moment after another. uh, We have a succession of moments, and so we're very limited in that way. Uh, Right now we're on, you know, talking to each other, next minute we're eating, and we really can't get ahead of time. Uh, But that's not the case for God. He's not bound by time. In fact, he's the one that created the whole universe out of nothing. Uh, So he transcends time altogether. Why is that important? Well, unless he's the timelessly eternal God, he cannot give us finite creatures the eternal life we need so desperately.
1: I kind of chuckle at the Stephen Wright line years ago, if it wasn't for time, he said, everything would happen at once. <laughs> that's
2: right. <laughs> that's a, that's exactly right.
1: Try and get your mind around that one for a minute, and uh, we move on. Is God bound by space?
2: Well, this is uh, not all that different from the last question, uh, is God bound by time? Uh, if he's not bound by time, he's not bound by space either. Uh, I don't know about you, but last time I checked, uh, I can only be in in one space at a time, and uh, I'm very very limited in that way. I, I make up a certain space, and and I uh, can't transcend uh, one space simultaneously. The the amazing thing about God is, well, he's not a God bound by space, which means he's he's immense. It also means that he can be present um, everywhere all at once. That's really difficult for our minds to understand, but Scripture describes him as the God um, who who knows all things and is present everywhere, both to judge and to save.
1: If there's seven billion people on earth, how does he keep track of all of us?
2: yeah well it's something only he can do right uh, this is something that would defy our ability clearly uh but uh i i can't help but think of what jesus says right uh, where he is uh on the one hand telling his disciples don't be anxious uh my father knows every hair on your head hmm. and then as he's you know been crucified and resurrected and about to ascend to heaven he tells his disciples uh, not to fear, because He will be with them to the, to the very ends of the earth. Uh, so what what appears to be um, something impossible for us is entirely possible for God, and actually, in the end, um, it, it not only means He's present in just a general sense everywhere, but He also is present with His children in a special way, in a, in a covenantal way, full of love and mercy and compassion.
1: Uh, have you ever thought, Matt, about um, oh, I don't know, if, uh, if 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 two and a half billion million people are all praying to him at the same time, uh, how, how does he how does he handle all that?
2: Well, this is one of the uh, wonders uh, of our of our God. Uh, you may remember we said it, at the beginning he's infinite in his essence. He's not just merely greater in size, uh, but his his very essence is immeasurable. Uh, He's a different type of being than us entirely. Mm -hmm. That has a lot of—that may seem like, oh, that's very, you know, theological or even philosophical, but like you're mentioning, that has a lot of important implications. Uh, One of them is that uh, when it comes to prayer, um, he's not only the God who knows all our prayers— um, but he is the God who then chooses to, to act according to his eternal will. Uh and oftentimes that's that's through means like our own prayers.
1: Matthew, uh, so Matthew our prayers
2: are significant.
1: We gotta take a break. We'll come back. Hold your thought, please. Uh this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's ninety four point nine FM and AM nine fifty the word in Orlando. We'll be right back. Matthew Barrett is the author of None Greater Matthew, before the break, uh, you were filling us in on uh, this this issue of prayer. Can you finish, please?
2: Yes, you know when we go to the Gospels, for example, Jesus uh, teaches his disciples uh, how to pray. You know, our Father, who who art in heaven, and, and this may be a prayer that that most Christians are are somewhat familiar with. Um, but of course, Jesus is assuming that uh, in, in instructing us to, to pray to the Father this way, he's assuming that uh, in, in his infinite knowledge, his infinite uh, immensity and, and omnipresence, uh, in his infinite omnipotence and power, uh, this is a God who not only hears our prayers, but then uh, works out his sovereign purposes and will, uh, and oftentimes does so through means like our own prayer life, uh, which means that uh, when we pray, uh, this is not just some, something that is lost in space and time, but God hears our prayers, and whether we always realize it or not, um, he is acting through our prayers as the very means to bring about his sovereign will.
1: Matthew, the next topic I want you to talk about, is God all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-wise?
2: Well, you know, this is a very important set of attributes. Uh and, and I I wanted to d- devote a chapter to each of them, but I thought, you know what? They really go together in so many ways because whenever we talk about God's knowledge, we can't help but talk about his power, and whenever we talk about his power, we have to talk about his wisdom. Uh these complement each other. You know, if God was all powerful but not all wise, well, he perhaps he would be an evil dictator of some sort and and immoral, uh, much like the the pagan deities of, of, of the ancient world. But uh, he, he's, he's all-wise. Or if he was all-wise, but not all-powerful, well, uh, that would be a, a wise sage, perhaps, but one that didn't have the ability to act on that wisdom. Uh, or if he was all-knowing, but not all-powerful, well, he would have a lot of knowledge of what has happened or will happen, but not the the omnipotence that then carry out his will. So all that to say, all three of these, power, knowledge, and wisdom, they must be kept together. This goes back to that attribute of simplicity. Uh, Whenever we're talking about one attribute, uh, we can't help but then go to the next attribute, because they all are related to one another.
1: Matthew, I am familiar with the word omnipresence and, and omnipotence and omniscience, but that other word I don't think I've ever seen before. Omnis, how do you pronounce it? Omnispience or what? what? Yes,
2: it's, it's a, it's a very foreign one. I think to, to most of us, Uh it's an old, an old fashioned word. We don't use it much today, but uh, it's one that some of the, the Christians down through the ages love to use to say, God is all wise. Um, so, You'll think of it this way, and some of these are communicable attributes, which means they're reflected in us in some way. We have wisdom, um, and hopefully. <laughs> we have wisdom that that is God-given, uh, but we always have to remember that the way uh, God has wisdom, well, it's an it's an entirely uh, another level. Uh, we we may have wisdom, but He is wisdom, and He's He's wisdom in an infinite degree. Omnisapience is a term that tries to capture that, to say uh, this isn't a God who merely possesses wisdom or acts in wise ways. He is wisdom in his very being.
1: Omnisapiens, I got it. That means all wise, right? That's right. All wise. Can God be both holy and loving? Uh, Righteousness, goodness, and love.
2: You know, in our uh, God talk, uh, sometimes very well-meaning Christians, but uh, oftentimes as we you know go about talking about the gospel or the Christian life, we sometimes can set attributes over against one another. Unfortunately, this is one of those cases. I, I sometimes hear Christians set God's love over against His holiness, uh, and we tend to do this when we talk about the cross. We'll say, well, the cross, what's that about? It's all about God's God's love, but uh, it doesn't have anything to do with his righteousness or his holiness or his judgment or his wrath. But when we go to a passage like Romans chapter 3, Paul says something very different, doesn't he? He talks about, well, there's a major problem as sinners. uh, God can't just, uh, you know, sweep our sin under the rug or turn a blind eye. He wouldn't be just. Uh, He wouldn't be a holy God if he did that. Uh, and yet, at the same time, how do we explain the fact that God has loved us so much he sent his son to die for us? Well, Paul says it's at the cross. That's the answer, where God's mercy and his love kiss his righteousness and his justice, so that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. This is only possible because Christ bears the penalty for our sin, and he does that uh, so that we are forgiven. But uh, he does it out of love for us. So uh, these don't need to be set against one another. In fact, we could say God is holy love.
1: Should God be jealous for his own glory?
2: We are not used to referring to God as jealous, are we? I mean, so often when we use the, the term jealous in our own culture, it's almost always a negative uh, attribute, uh, one that is communicates immorality, or, you know, we think of, you know, the abusive boyfriend who, you know, beats up uh, his girlfriend, something like that, out of jealousy, that sort of thing. And surely that's not what we mean when we talk about God. Uh, But uh, it may surprise Christians that Scripture everywhere uh, does talk about God as the one who's jealous, not just the one who acts in a jealous way, but whose name is called Jealous. Uh, So what does this mean in Scripture? Well, uh, unlike our common uh, assumptions, in Scripture it refers to God's... um, It it refers to an intolerant love of God, the fact that He is jealous first and foremost for His own glory, because He's the perfect being, He's the only one in the universe who deserves glory, uh, unlike us. Um, And so as He he then uh, relates to us, um, we are to be those made in his image who then live for his glory. All that to say, jealousy simply means for us as Christians that uh, God cares deeply about our exclusive devotion to himself. And that should have implications then for our holiness, for how we treat others, and most importantly, for our devotion to god himself
1: matthew i want you to explain to us where is the holy spirit in our everyday lives is he inside of each believer where does the holy spirit reside and and that's are, an are, are, are we to be talking to him we don't do we pray to the holy spirit do we add
2: yeah yeah that's an excellent excellent question uh, you know, when whenever we talk about the attributes of God, we have to remember this is the triune God uh that we are referring to, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And certainly with these attributes, these are true of each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means that the Holy Spirit too uh is characterized by by these many attributes. Uh and and for that reason, uh we call them Holy Spirit. So that certainly captures both his transcendence, his infinite um, his infinite nature, but then also his, his ethical purity and holiness. Uh, where, where is he? Well, uh, when we—Scripture has a lot to say about this. Uh, it even calls us temples, uh, picking up on the Old Testament language, temples of the Holy Spirit, which is just amazing, because in the Old Testament, you could not just walk right into the temple— You could be struck down. Uh, You are a sinner. You can't enter into the presence of the Holy God. And yet, because of Christ being our mediator, now Christ says the Holy Spirit, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to indwell you, and permanently so. Um, What does this mean? Well, there's there's a lot of mystery here. I think it means, first and foremost, that um, we are those who are set apart for God. Uh, that, that's part of what it meant in the Old Testament. Uh, God, that's part of what God's presence, communi- presence communicated in the Old Testament. So we're set apart for God, but it also means that the Holy Spirit is with us uh, in a very personal way to, to help us strive after Christ, uh, to be conformed. He, he's at work in us to conform us more and more into the image of Christ, um, he does this often in quiet ways. Uh.
1: My guest has been Matthew Barrett. What a great book, none greater. We've got to wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Thanks for joining us once again on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. In the first segment, John Simmons was with us with his moving story. Uh, in his book, God Has a Sentence for Your Life, And then Rusty George in California talking about Micah 6-8 and the book called Justice, Mercy, Humility. Uh, Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. The Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, please check out my most recent book. Uh, You can go up to Amazon and learn more about it. It's called Character Carved in Stone. It's about the 12 benches. On the campus at West Point with a word different word carved into each end of the bench Uh, it came from a visit I made to West Point several years ago I think you'll enjoy it in the meantime have a wonderful week ahead we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday power hour right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950 the word in Orlando